Hello, I'm Conor O'Shea and welcome back to the Eddie Jones Coaching Podcast. We're focusing on a player's perspective this week as we're joined by a World Cup winner who Eddie knows well. And I'd come from Australia where there was this structure of Eddie Jones's coaching all around me and I went to the first training and he had a ball and he just dropped it and said go. Former Australian back Joe Roth joins us to talk about his love of playing over training, how he won a holiday to Fiji after a wager with Eddie and his final rugby outing at Twickenham. Morning, Joe. Morning, Eddie. Um, Hi, mate. Very good. Bit, bit nervous. Bit nervous because we're in the presence of a proper rugby legend this morning. Um, Joe, really good of you to spend some time. Myself and Eddie, over the course of lockdown, have been talking to various different coaches, and uh, it's just nice to have a playing perspective and maybe a bit of an insight into the early years of Eddie uh, and some of the work you might have done with him. But I'm going to reminisce myself because. You've got a CV and an honours list as long as as long as anybody could have in the game, and one of the true greats. But my first memory of you is probably a match you wouldn't even remember, and it was in Mount Isa, uh, <laughs> and you were probably a young, definitely wouldn't 17, <laughs> 17, 17, 18 year old with the likes of David Knox, Pat Howard. Willie O and an Irish team traipsed up and uh, played the Emerging Wallabies. And I think the match before, if I'm right, or a little bit before, we played ACT and there was a curtain raiser uh, in in that match for ACT versus Ireland. And you played in that. And Bob Dwyer then picked you from that game into that match in Mount Isa. And I was sitting beside Michael Bradley on the bench, thankfully, three days before a test match. And Michael Bradley turned to me and said, this is not looking good. And this is before the match even started. We watched the Australian warm-up, we watched our warm-up, and it was a long all night. And that was the, that was the first time uh, we'd seen Joe Roth. And then, obviously, as the years go on, uh, looking at the 95 World Cup, etc., uh, the, the, the rest of the career. And I've talked to Eddie about these sort of things in the past, and... I think it was Bob, wasn't it, at the time that did it? And of Australia always picking straight after you, there or just before you, it was Tim Hoare and Jason Little at around 90, just before the World Cup in 91, possibly. They, they were picked quite young into the teams. And Australia always did that. How did you feel? Or can you remember that particular match? Because that is one of my lowlights of my career. <laughs> and that was just off the bench. But can you remember that game, how you felt popping along? I do, I do. I, I, I remember it well because I was 18, just down at school. And, you know, when the Australian coach says, do you want to come and play for the Emerging Wallabies against Ireland? For the, you know, it's your, of course you say yes. Um, but the, the greatest bit of trivia, Mount Isa, for, for those who don't know, is in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of the outback Australia. And it, it is only renowned for having the largest Irish club in all of Australia. Correct. So, <laughs> for me, being an 18-year-old kid, getting an invitation from the Wallabies coach to go and play against Ireland in Mount Isa, it was. I, I remember it distinctly well, and um, you know the. I, I was. It, you are right that in in Australia, and um, it, it, what they do is they 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 will pick you on based on on form or or, or potential or whatever it might be. Um, and in that first year out of school, I, I think I ended up playing uh, 55 games of rugby. I just put my hand up for everything I was invited to. 
from sevens to nineteens to twenty ones to emerging wallabies to um, anything that I was invited to, I said, "Yep, love to." Um, uh, but that was obviously a highlight in that year, um, playing against uh, a national side for the first time. Yeah, it wasn't a highlight for us, to be fair, but we'll we'll take it. And I, I think I think Mount Eyes actually was at the time was the biggest Irish pub or Irish club in the Southern Hemisphere, not 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 just Australia. Um, what are you up to now? Just to give us a, we know the rugby person. What are you up to now and back in it back home? Yeah, I did, Connor. I did um, say to you guys previously that you know I might not be the best. I'm, I'm not. I'm not linked in with rugby too much at the moment. I'm still in Canberra though. Uh, that's home for me, and I, I head up the John James Foundation, which is Canberra's largest medical charity. So that keeps me busy from time to time, and um, and I, I do still obviously support uh, the Brumbies and and uh, the Wallabies and, and get along. But the, the kids are at, of, of an age where my Saturdays are spent on their sidelines now. So uh, so that's me um, in uh, in in cold winter Canberra at the moment. And. and- just before we, we bring Eddie in on this, because you two obviously know each other pretty well, more than well. Um, what are your thoughts on him as a from the outside in, looking at him as a coach now, the, the coach that you worked with first versus the, the coach that you probably see from the outside in now? Is there any, any difference in the man? Um, oh, there is. You know, the, Eddie's the, uh, the most adaptable and, and um, keen to learn um, coach that I've ever had. Um, so I, I actually was only reflecting last year I, um, that uh, someone made a comment in, in Super Rugby reflecting on the early days of the Brumbies and something we did wrong. And Eddie made a very technical comment on their coaching at the, at the New South Wales Waratahs. And I thought to myself, he is still watching every game in every competition across the globe. Um, so, uh, uh, you know, without I, I realise he's on this podcast, so I don't want to be too glowing about about my time with Eddie. But um, you know, he's certainly the uh, uh, the coach that brought the best down in me. Well, on the basis that he won't be glowing about any player, Eddie, what, what was rough? What was Joe like as a as a player and, and a, a person to coach? I know how you uh, described <laughs> me before. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, he's a match winner. You know, that's a great thing. He used to win matches for his team. Um, interested about the comment 55 games. Oh, Joe yeah. would love that because he wouldn't have had to train. So he wouldn't uh, love that. <laughs> he wasn't the best trader, Joe. <laughs> I, th- I do think, you know, Eddie, I was reflecting on when we first met that, uh, yeah, and my training ethic, um, that you probably hadn't come across someone like me all that much before. You, 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 you were, you know, as a player, you know, a hooker for Randwick and did the hard work. And as a coach, you're in Japan where everyone trains diligently and it's a, it's a mantra. And then you've arrived at the Brumbies and, and, um, and, and we met. And, and you know, I, I, my first tra- ever training session with the Brumbies, I, I'd just come off knee operations and probably as a result of the 55 games, to be honest, as a young bloke. And um, I, the first training session, um, I couldn't train. So I did what all 18-year-old guys do. I took my shirt off and, and got a, a, a tackling bag and I lay on it and I sunbaked while the rest of the t- team um, bashed each other. And, and I realised that you can't ever have a second first impression. And that's, that's the first impression of my training ethic and I've never been able to shake it ever since. <laughs> 
Any any comment on that, Eddie? <laughs> uh, no, I think it was a pretty good first impression. Uh, look, Joe was a quality athlete, and I think now um, he'd probably flourish more. Um, back then, we were still learning about trying to get the best out of players, and I think with sports science and the advent of more specialised staff now, Joe would have probably had a longer career than he than he did. I don't know whether he wanted to play any longer. He, yeah, uh, what was your last game, mate? Thirteen for Oxford. Thirteen for Oxford. Yeah, age of what 30, 31. Um, and it was just time. It was just time for me. I think. Um, yes, you're right. I I fundamentally disagreed with the the notion that um, that the wingers should do the same fitness as the props, and that it's one in all in, and this whole that that whole early coming to terms with professionalism um, was, you know, I, I fundamentally disagreed with that. I, I was, um, you know, I, I grew up um, doing athletics and, and various other things. And so this whole, the more you run, the fitter you'll get was, was very simplistic to me and, and didn't suit, didn't suit um, my you know, approach to the game. Yeah. Well, I, I think Joe and Eddie, I, I think we all went through that period from 94 into kind of, the, the early bits of the real professionalism and people thought professionalism was nine to five, almost seven days a week. And if you didn't fill the day that it wasn't being professional as opposed to the rest being important and how you manage yourself outside and downtime and mental switch offs, which people just got to understand when we went pro, everything just went, Oh, we have to work full time. It has to be every minute of the day almost. And that's, that's what's involved. Could I'm going to go back to both of you on, on, something Eddie talked about there about being a match winner um, and this is my perception outside in Joe I looked at the Brumbies team you played with uh, you know and, and you looked at the likes of Stephen Larkham you looked at at times how structured it was yet you were the maverick maybe in the team so and, and that's a perception outside in but how did you feel playing within that structure as someone who Eddie describes as a match winner um, that's really interesting because we had we had quite uh, prescriptive patterns um, during the, the what I would say that were the halcyon days of the Brumbies in two thousand and two thousand and one, and yet I probably didn't feel as though I ever had as much freedom um, in any other team or any other period of my life as I did during that time. Um, I think as I, I was often playing fullback through that time, and. Uh, I had the scope to inject in any area of the game, um, but was within quite structured patterns. So, um, Eddie, you'll remember the you know the two thousand and one, the last four games of the two thousand and one Brumbies um, season that year. Uh, I've never run on to the field with that almost that um, the zone um, feeling that you knew exactly what everyone else around you within the team was going to do, the way they were going to play, and then you could actually inject yourself in whatever way that you felt was best suited for the team. Um, you know, we were, we had very structured patterns at that stage, but it created a freedom that, that you know, uh, I think belies, you know, how structured it, it felt or it was. And were you given... Um were you given quite a lot of license within that? Did you know, for instance, would you know exactly what the prop was doing or did you know your specific role and the people around you? How, how, 
how much detail did you know of the rest of the team or how much did you just wing it, so to speak? Uh, oh, that was... No, we knew detail of who was going to be at Rucks uh, three to four phases in. Um, but but I think that, that, that during that period, we never lost the uh, ability to... Um, to digress from from that based on what we could see in front of us. Um, and that wasn't an easy process to get to that, I think. You know, the year before, um, Eddie, we, we had a, a, a quite a, a structured way to play. Um, we weren't, didn't adapt within those structures well enough. And, you know, it, but we had a great learning environment um, that started, you know, from 98 and 99. Uh, and so I, I think by 2001, we had a, a team that had, um, both that adaptability, but within a very structured game plan, and did, it was the most. Did complete... you ever? Sorry, did you ever within that initial phase when you were getting used to those structures, and you talk about that adaptability? Did you ever, as a group, because God, you look at that team, what a group of personalities that 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 Brumbies team had. That wasn't just a a normal group of people. That was a, a group of you know, pretty big uh, individual characters. Did you ever question uh, why, you know, in some of the bad matches, uh, you know, this structure doesn't fit? And especially if you're looking at a player who, I'm going to say a maverick, but a maverick within structure like yourself, did you ever start questioning that too, Eddie? Or was it, listen, we're on the right path here and it'll deliver success? Um, no, I think that was the key. Um, there was, um, to to play with the structures that we did, you had to have belief in what you were doing um, because it, it builds over time and 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 it did build over a, a couple of years, really. Um, we had a very ordinary year in, in 1998 and we, we had a lot of soul searching at the end of that, um, but then we bought into the, the belief of, of the way that we wanted to to evolve our, the Brumbies style of play, which was which was a thing at the time, which was interesting. It was a, it was its own style, and and yes, you you say that we, we brought together a lot of personalities, uh, personalities on the field and off the field in many respects. But um, it was the the buy in from all the players to the to the uh, uh, you know the, um, the the way that the game could evolve for us as um, as a team was really interesting through that two or three year period. And, and Eddie, just just picking up on that then, uh, and you, what's the balance that you looked for within that group of, uh, I'm keeping on talking about Joe as a maverick, but this is just me looking from the outside, but what's the balance between those guys who are unbelievable detail, and then I'll say maybe that was someone like uh, Steve Larkham, uh, who know inside out things, versus the maverick. What, when does that balance tip too much within that sort of structure? Uh, we're always searching for it. I think I was just thinking this morning, no, I was going to speak to Roffy. Yeah, we had a back three of Roffy, Andrew Walker and Mark Bartholomew. Now, Mark Bartholomew is a bank clerk. He works, still works at the bank, doesn't he, Roffy? Mm, yep, he does. He is the most serious, dedicated, dot the I's, cross the T's, did everything really well. And then you had uh, Walks and Roffy who were, more off the cuff. Uh, Roffy was a good communicator and, and Andrew Walker was, you know, probably for just pure talent was one of the best players we've ever seen. Yeah. So you had those three guys. Roffy sort of sat between them. Uh, Mr. Dependable, 
uh, could do brilliant things, but also could communicate well. And then Walks was just, you know, he was just off the tree doing whatever he needed to do. And it, but everyone knew that that's what he did, and we supported him really well. And and in and if you can ever get that sort of balance, um, you know, it, it is the best balance. And you look at the game today, you still you still want that in your back three, and you want then you want a sort of another version of that in your in your inside backs, another sort of version of that in your back row. So you're always searching for that that balance between dependability and giving you something a little bit different. Uh, one of the all-time wallaby greats was Owen Finnegan and his relationship with George Gregan and how that worked within that team, both ACT and, and the Wallabies. But you looked again and you didn't see this natural athletic uh, phenomenon that a lot of back row forwards were. You just saw a guy who understood the game inside out, always is in the right place, incredible engine. So what sort of character was he then? If, if you look at that, uh, that ACT team of that vintage, which really formed the core of the Wallabies that won the World Cup, wouldn't it? Owen's one of a kind and, and the game's never seen anything like him since. So, <laughs> yeah. But you're right. You, you talk about those combinations um, of, you know, Finnegan and George Smith or Gregan and Larkham um, or, you know, the, I, I loved the combination that I have with, with Walks and Mark Bartholomew's. Um, and, and one of the things that we looked at um, here or, or that just happened by coincidence is that um, this shared experience where George and Steve Larkham had played together for so long and for so many years that they each made it, each other better. Um, that notion of, of shared time on the field um, is integral and... And that's why, you know, we played a lot of rugby together and these combinations um, formed. You, you look at the, the actual statistics, the chances of, be, of George Gregan and Steve Larkin both being from Canberra and being the best in their position in the world, um, you know, extraordinary. It's, it's, it should not happen. Um, but we had these key combinations who had a lot of time together um, over a long period of time, and I think that really helped the, the dynamic of our team when we went through this this very um, successful period in under Eddie's Eddie's coaching in in the early two thousands. Eddie <laughs> Eddie described his many great motivational techniques. Joe, his uh, famous story, which I've never actually asked him about, um, when he came over to England first, that to the, to to show. Uh, ben Young said he needed to lose some body weight. He offered him a pack of the Jelly Babies. Whether that's true or not, we don't know. He also told us of a story of incentivizing you for uh, improving your goal kicking uh, with a holiday to Fiji. Uh, can you can you can you remember that, or is that an urban myth? No, it's true. It's it's a hundred percent true. Talk talk to us. So I think, as I said, I was I was. I was a little bit different. I think, you know, when Eddie arrived, I, I had a different motivation and a different approach to the game. And and I think, you know, at one stage, I, I loved hanging around after training and kicking goals and, and having a muck around. Um, and for whatever reason, I ended up being the, the best kicker in the team at that time. And so I was throwing the ball in, in Super Rugby. And, and my view of that in, on some level is that you have to, 
I was a reluctant kicker. I, I enjoy kicking goals, but um, when you are in a pressure situation, you know, kickers don't win games, but they lose games. And I had a, um, you know, I, I had a really open relationship with Eddie to be able to say, well, Eddie, you know, where what's in it for me? I, you know, I, all I have is is a, is a um, you know, fear of my own self-loathing if I let the team down. Um, so, um, and you know, I don't, I don't want to be sticking around after training for another hour to kick goals while everyone's back having a coffee and and enjoying themselves. This is not fair. I mean, it was it was along that lines, wasn't it, Eddie? Yeah, no, that's a hundred percent true, mate. Um, so yeah, he uh, incentivised me with a holiday at the end of end of the season, which was which was brilliant. It was uncalled for, but I actually said, "Well, what? Where is the? How am I going to be motivated to stick around for an hour after training and kick goals? Because it wasn't innately in my nature to want to be that person, and not everyone is. Not everyone wants to be the." Um, you know, the person who's kicking goals on Christmas Day, you know, all those great urban myths of, of people who do that. Um, you know, some people like to train less and play more. Have you, um, have you I mean, Eddie, have you, have you got any, in terms of the uh, weird and wacky incentivizations of players, do you, do you still look at, at doing that with people? Or like, how do you, I doubt there are many holidays to Fiji on offer uh, through, through the England team at the moment with, with travel restrictions. But what, what sort of incentives do you look to put in place? I think the whole thing about it is that you've got to get some sort of emotional attachment with the player, and the the prize or the or the disincentive is not really the the key. I think you know if every player. Like Joe can remember that conversation for how long ago? How long is that now, mate? Twenty five years ago. Yeah, 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 and that and that's the power of emotion. You know, if you if you have an emotional relationship or emotional conversation with someone, it sticks with them and it means something to them. Um, and I, I can remember Joe, you know, seeing him kick after practice. Uh, you know, we joke about because I think it was a seventy percent cut off. You know, we'd say, mate, you're sixty nine percent. You better spend a few more, few more kicks out there, mate. And it was just so it became a bit of fun, you know, but. But in that then became more deliberate practice because Roffy was a, a carefree, you know, talented guy and goal kicking wasn't something, it's not for a, a carefree, talented guy. It's a studious, diligent person that, that wants to do it every day. Um, so, and it worked and it, won us, it ended up help, helping us win a premiership. Um, I don't know how the holiday was, mate. Was it good? It was. It was very good. Did, did you did you Joe have a kicking coach? Uh, no, not at that stage. I I don't think the, did the Brumbies have a kicking. I I can't ever remember having a kicking coach. No, I think someone used to bring you out the tea, mate. That was the closest we got to it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but so but sometimes it's just that repetition, and people try and. It's a bit like trying to pigeonhole the maverick player. It's also if you've got a natural kicking style that works and is repetitive, it's not the same. The great great golfers don't always have the same swing. They don't all get coached by David Ledbetter, and then sometimes we we tend to overcoach. And especially in something like that, you just want to you, you just want to have that repetition if you've got a natural ability to do it. Um, Eddie, how do you how do you reflect on your coaching style with that table? It's, that's twenty odd years ago. 
and and you look at how you dealt, and actually you look at the personalities that come out of that team and where they are in the game now. Um, but also, like, how do you feel you are twenty years on? And maybe Joe from the outside in can give an opinion uh, as to what he sees in in you now. Yeah, I think back then it was more sort of black and white. Uh, you know, and what do I mean by that? We had a a number of players that were completely driven. Um, and you know, when Jay talks about the style we created, the style wasn't created by me; it was created by the players. You know, and the players owned that style. They drove it. They it was part of their own DNA, and and that was the special part of it. Uh, you know, I was just a facilitator there. But then there were other players I was more black with that I had to drive really hard that didn't have that that self-driven. And now I think coaching's a bit more grey. You, you, you hide in the shadows a bit more. You push people in the right direction. You're not at the front so much. Uh, you're guiding people a lot more um, than it was back then. What about you, Joe? What do you see in, in rugby now from the, your, your involvement or even looking at the Brumbies as they, as they currently are and, and where rugby's at in Australia? Yeah, I think it, for me it raises two points. One is, um, and I think this is where you talk to any of the players during that period and they'll, they'll say that Eddie Jones was the best coach they've ever had because I think Eddie brought individualised motivation to the, to the team for the first time. Um, so he tried to understand you know, what made each each person tick. And it, it's really interesting that I do remember a, a range of different conversations, like small conversations that we had that, that actually um, helped me um, understand where my place was in the game or motivate me for a certain match. And um, I think that that um, was, some, was something that, yeah, interesting that it, whether you can still do it as much these days or not, but it, it really connected with, the players at that time, and I say that because the players at that time we had a we had a reasonably bright, educated senior group of players through that period. Guys like Steve Lark and Brett Robinson, George Gregan, all knew the game and, and were students of the game. And so um, Eddie allowed you talk about belief in the way that we played. Um, Eddie allowed ownership of of certain aspects of the game and certain. Um, Ways that we approach the game, and it it subsequently in in, in later years became a, a toxic word, player power. But for us at that time, it was player input and and ownership of um, our approach and preparation for the game, ownership of the way that we played, ownership of the patterns and styles, and ultimately ownership of 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 being res- accountable for results, um, and that. That was a very powerful, motivating um, thing that that in Australia certainly got flipped in in subsequent years, where player power was very much a, a toxic and a negative culture within rugby teams. Do you think that that there there was a phase that players' expectation was to have that power without maybe the background. So you, you talk, can, and maybe Eddie, this is for you, can you give a group of players, you had personalities that were able to drive. If you look at England now and you look at some of the players that you have there and you know you can trust them to drive the team. But then as a coach, if you don't have those personalities, you must, you must drive it. Or can, how do you create that group in the first place? 
Yeah, no, hundred percent right, Connor. It's a it's a maturation uh, process. Um, it takes time to build up that that cohesiveness in the team for the team to to have that responsibility. Like with England side now, we're we're moving closer and co- closer towards that, um, which is the exciting thing for us. That Brumby side, it started under Rod McQueen for the first two years, um, in a way. Um, and then I was I was lucky enough to take over an established group of players. We brought in some young guys, mixed it up a little bit, and and the team team grew over a period of time. And they made mistakes. You know, the great thing is in that period, your mistakes uh, weren't so highlighted as they were now. Like we made mistakes off the field. Uh, we made mistakes on the field, um, but we were able to learn from that. And I think, as Joe said, in those final parts we had together we put it put all that learning together and it was almost like it was the most symbi- symbiotic relationship where the whole organization was working together not only the team the front office everything was working together to produce this team that played a unique style of rugby um was joe part of that senior leadership team that you had or was he the maverick that just added the cherry on top of the cake he was the lobbyist mate Huh? <laughs> I, I ended up kind of giving myself the title of being the people's captain. So, <laughs> no formal leadership role, but I was the people's captain. Yeah, I was the voice of voice of the people in in, in the team and the community. You know, you, you've got someone who has a C next to their name, but you know, there's someone who drives it. You know, from within the team, someone who calls the shots from the back. <laughs> back of the bus, back of the bus. Were you front in the front, front in the middle of the back of the bus? That wasn't your place, no, though. I tried to get there. I never got there, mate. I never got there. Never, never got, got to the back of the. Eddie, if you had tried with that group of players back in those days to be incredibly, you, you talked about taking over from Rob McQueen and then potentially not ripping up everything, building on what he had done, and and taking taking stuff that he had done, making it better, improving as that group matured. If you come in as a coach and try to rip that up and impose a different sort of game plan structure environment, do you think, it's very hard to say this definitively, but do you think the players would have accepted it? It's hard. Uh, Yeah, you've always got to, I think you've always got to make a judgment when you came to the team. Like I I came to the Brumbies, I had no coaching record. and I came in, they'd come fifth and second, Rafi, first two years. Mm-hmm. And yeah, right. uh, I basically, for the first 75% of the first season, did nothing. Just assessed it, um, see what we needed to do. I can remember the first strength and conditioning session going down to Tuggeranong High School. And, like, kids are having PE classes and the guys, this is a professional team. And and they're doing their strength and conditioning class with the year ten PE class. That's what it was like, you know. It wasn't, in essence, there was a lot of professionalism within the player group, but in terms of the organisation, there wasn't. So, immediately felt we needed to change that in some way. And then it became the style of rugby because at that time, uh, the Crusaders were a terrible team. They were second last last in the competition. And they decided we're not going to have this. You keep the ball at the ruck. And then they decided the ruck was going to be an absolute 
uh, fight. Then we weren't equipped to handle that in 98. And so we had to change the way we played. And, and I can remember sitting down with a number of the players and saying, look, these New Zealand sides are physically better than us. We've got to find a way to, to be smarter than them. And then we came up with our own style of play. And again, it was driven by the players. And Joe, just uh, thank you so much for your time this morning. Just a couple of quick, uh, quick ones just to finish off. Just you, you leaving Australia and uh, coming over to this side of the world for a little sojourn in France. Uh, talk to us about how you felt about that culturally, uh, down in beautiful sunny Biarritz, and your time in Oxford. Uh, just finishing things off. To, to, give us a brief little thought process on the different cultures that you saw. Um. Oh, look, France was, was magnificent. You want to have an emotional thick skin there. You know, it's, it's a sort of down the southwest. If you, you know, if you win at Biarritz on a Saturday, then you wouldn't pay for your coffee on a Monday. But if you lost, they wouldn't serve you your coffee on a Monday. It was, it was that sort of approach to the game there. And I remember the first training session I had there, um, uh, the Laurent Rodriguez, who was, do you remember Laurent, uh, French number yeah. eight? And oh yeah, the, and I'd come from Australia where there was this structure of Eddie Jones's coaching uh, all around me, and I went to the first training, and he had a ball, and he just dropped it and said go, and and I had so many questions. I said, what's the purpose of this drill? What are we doing? What? Where are the outlines? Who's on? Who's on whose side? And it was just a drop the ball and go meant do something. <laughs> So it was a, it was a really um, uh, you know that laissez-faire uh, unstructured moving to that um, was was quite the adjustment at that time, um, but it was a fantastic year. I I, I absolutely loved loved my time there, and then uh, yeah, finish off. Um, you know, I, I feel blessed with our game that um, the you can you can finish your career um, playing in the varsity match. Uh, playing at Oxford versus Cambridge in, in what's the last, I think, great um, and abiding amateur games in the rugby calendar. Um, you know, that, that's there are special games. And, and I think it, I felt blessed to have crossed the amateur and the, and the professional and to have the experiences of playing in Japan, playing in, playing in France, playing the varsity. And, um, and, you know, during a time when, you know, I played under Eddie, I played with, this this fantastic group of people who I still call my mates now, um, you know, there's, there's I, I feel very blessed to have uh, to have had all the experiences that I did. I know, and uh, people always look on players who they see as the these hyper talented players. There's this perception that they don't work hard, but the fact that you became a goal kicker at the level you became a goal kicker at the the, the little drop in that uh, of the I had so many questions over the session that Lauren Rodriguez was running. Uh, you obviously, you don't spend as long at the top of the game and become what you became without being an unbelievably hard worker, despite the perception that you might want to portray to people. Uh, but give some advice to coaches listening into this from your perspective on how to deal with the Maverick. Uh, how to deal with the players who mightn't, they mightn't perceive work as hard, but are important to the team. G- give some advice to them as to how to deal with a you. Yeah. Um, look, the innuendo of a, of a maverick is that there's an ego there. Um, and one of the most important 
One of the most important parts that Eddie instilled in us and that we all committed to is that everyone leaves their ego at the door at the at the Brumbies and at, the, at that time. Um, it was it was really important. Um, I, I think you and I would hate to think that anyone um, ever thought that I wasn't I was lazy to the detriment of the team. I um, not liking training is is very different to not doing the work or um, you know the Tuesday the Tuesday contact session doesn't suit everyone um, and the individual motivation. I remember Eddie once gave me a, a rest on a, a Thursday before a test match. Um, and he just thought that I looked a bit tired. And then I felt like I had to perform better for him because I would otherwise be letting the team down if I didn't. Um, and it became a very uh, motivating part of my um, pre- psychological preparation for that game. So I just think the, the a Maverick's not um, someone who... Um, is is doing their own thing out um, to the detriment of the team. It's just you have to, I, I think, harness the um, individuality of that person as a coach, um, and and the people who can, um, you know, they they're the ones who I think are attuned to to what a good culture within a team can do. I mean, we had the most diverse group of people and players um, that you you would ever ever. Um, pull together and it, for some reason it just worked oh, brilliant Joe I mean uh, can I just thank you I know you go back a long way with Eddie but personally uh, other than having to think about Mount Isa in 1994 it's been an absolute privilege to uh, to chat to you if I said that it is time for us to in Brumby rhyming slang go for a Joe Roffey what would that mean <laughs> it's time for a coffee isn't it time for a coffee okay that's Brumby rhyming slang so uh, I've told, I'm told that's that's what that's what it was in the, back in the day. So, thank you very much for your time, Eddie. As as ever, uh, really good to Thanks chat, and it's been a, a Thanks, pleasure being talking to someone like you. Cheers, Joe. Thanks very much to Joe Roth for his time, and remember to keep your reviews and ratings coming in on Apple Podcasts, just as Pompool has done, saying, "Having just started coaching in a different sport, listening to the podcast has given me valuable insight into how I want to be viewed." Thank you to the RFU for putting this on as well, and to Eddie and Connor. Justin Langer was amazing. And similar thoughts from Harriet Small in London, who says, I'm a massive rugby fan, and this podcast is superb. I'm always recommending it and raving to everyone, even people who have no clue about rugby. Thanks to both of them, and thanks to you for listening. We'll see you again next time. Music.